0: Welcome to Ink's The Founder's Project with Alexa Von Tobel. I'm Alexa, founder of Learn Best, author of the New York Times best-selling book, Financially Fearless, the forthcoming book, Financially Forward, and most recently, founder and managing partner of Inspired Capital, a venture firm committed to investing in founders who are building our future. Each week, I love to sit down with the top entrepreneur to share their story of guts, inspiration, and drive. And this week, meet Richie Cerna, co-founder and CEO of Phoenix the fintech company at the helm of the payments infrastructure space. After graduating with honors from Harvard, he began his career as a management consultant at Boozing Companies in their financial services group. Shortly after that, he moved to San Francisco where he learned to code and joined Balance Payments, the first payments API for marketplaces, as a software engineer. In 2015, Richie left, decided to start his own company and began his journey with Phoenix. Welcome, Richie.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I, I just wanted to share Um, This is a a really big moment for me, for everybody who's listening. uh, I've been following you for a number of years. You were actually the very first startup founder that I've ever met. So this was back in 2009 when I was interning in New York at (laughs) J.P. Morgan, and I remember meeting you at your office. You were three or four people, and I remember thinking, how crazy is this person who dropped out of Harvard to start a fintech company? And now to see how far everything's gone and how all your successes it's an incredible moment. I feel like it's Terry Gross in the fresh air right now. This is an awesome experience. Um, so thank you so much.
0: I, I first of all, guys, I like wish that I would have grabbed Richie then and given him a million dollars and been like, go, <laughs> I'm buying your future. So, yes, uh, I've been really fortunate to Richie for a long time. Uh, met him when I myself was just getting learned best off the ground. But Richie, I feel like with that, it is perfect for you to tell everybody just first before we dive into Phoenix and everything around it. You have some news yourself. So do you want to start there?
1: Yeah, very, very excited to share that we just closed and are announcing today our $35 million series B round, which is uh, being led by Sequoia, also being participated in by a crew and none other than inspired capital. So so excited to have you officially on board to the Phoenix family.
0: I'm super excited about it. So, let's just step back, Richie. Um you're a super smart guy and you are going after this massive payment space. Just for everybody that out there is listening, can you like explain Phoenix in simple simple terms to people?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, at its core, Phoenix is a uh, payments infrastructure platform. Really what that means is that we help any software company become a payment company. And so what we started to see, and to kind of put this in context over the last few years, is that you look at a company like Uber, Airbnb, and Shopify, or MindBody, none of these companies on their face really look like payment companies. But payments is a core part of their differentiated product offering. It's core to their user experience. And for many of these companies, it's actually a huge profit center. The issue is that for companies like Airbnb and Uber, they actually have to go out and recruit two to 300 people to actually build that payments infrastructure in-house. And so. Um, What Finix basically allows these types of companies to do is actually outsource that to us, allow us to take on the heavy sort of technical burden of building a payment processing system and allow them to sort of focus on what's really core to their business. Um, So instead of spending three to five years of upfront development, instead of going out and hiring that army of engineers, um, we are allowing them the quickest and fastest, easiest way to really start to monetize their payments and give and offer to their customers the best sort of payments experience. We believe that in the future, everyone's gonna be putting as much attention and sort of value towards their payments products as they are to their overall sort of user experience.
0: So I always thought that one of the best ways to think about Phoenix was to think about who its customers are. So can you help describe the types of people who would come and use and get on the Phoenix platform?
1: Yeah, so one really great example that we like to share is, is the story of sort of MindBody. So for those who aren't familiar with MindBody, they're a software provider for the yoga studio and fitness industry. And if you think about it, every single yoga studio needs to accept payments, they need to create a website, they need to create an accounting system, they need to be able to have a sort of shopping cart experience, but most of them don't have armies of engineers either to go out and build their own sort of software platform. So instead, they go to MindBody and they provide that all in one single package. And so MindBody could theoretically monetize their software by charging $100 a month for a license, or they could take 3% of every single yoga mat and of every single yoga class. And MindBody actually sold last year for about $2 billion, and 50 to 60% of that entire revenue comes from their payment stream. So we're helping companies like MindBody in every single vertical around the country build their own sort of payment processing system and really start to monetize their payment stream. Today in, in the world, there's about $2 trillion of revenue that goes to payment companies. We're helping to unlock that for these different software businesses.
0: So let's quickly step back. So you are going after an incredibly complicated product to build, regulated Uh industry, highly complex back end. As you think about your own product development and trying to simplify it for your team, give us your playbook. How do you think about that?
1: So when we think about, about our product, obviously, payments is incredibly complex, right? It's very esoteric. You're bringing together security, accounting, compliance, um, money movements. Uh, and so what we've really sort of uh, established early on was a culture of sort of written communication, right? We do a lot of whiteboarding. But I think the most important part of this, and something that I learned back at my previous engineering experience is that without the history and the why of how these things operate, it's really difficult to build the best products. So we spend a ton of time during our onboarding process going through payment boot camps and really sort of explaining the history of payments. Um, and when you start to see the history of why these systems kind of came about, it really starts to make sense, right? You kind of bring sort of a method to the madness. Um, <laughs> and I think that's what allows our-
0: engineers- I like that. <laughs>
1: And I think when you start to see that, you start to see, you know, the engineers can make better product decisions, right? We're really trying to empower everybody in our company to become a payment expert.
0: So I want to go back to a little bit of your personal moment of starting Phoenix, and when you were like, all right, I've got to go do this. So you graduate from Harvard. You're super smart. You go to management consulting, financial services. You make the leap to go to SF to, by the way, become an engineer, teach yourself coding. And then you decide to leave to go start Phoenix. Where did the moment come from? Like, what was the aha moment where you're like, I've got to go do this and take the risk?
1: Honestly, I I didn't really have a choice. Uh, The previous payment startup that I was at actually got acquired. Uh, And so once we got acquired, I had to go out and find a new job. And so I kind of led the entire migration. We were migrating all of our customers over to Stripe. And so during that period, one of our customers raised this massive fundraising round. They were a big household startup name. And I knew from the get-go that they actually weren't our best customer in terms of volume that they were pumping through our system. So I looked at our database, and I saw that there were actually three customers who were doing much more volume than them. It was a software provider for the vineyard industry in Napa. So if you think about it, similar to the MindBody Experience, most uh, vineyards are not building their own software or their own payment systems. There was another company that was doing a, sim- a similar play uh, in the CrossFit gym space, and another one that was providing software to tourists out in Hawaii. And so what we started to realize was that it was these sort of B2B platforms that kind of sit behind the scenes that were actually generating tons of volume and tons of revenue. And that's really where there was sort of a gap out in the market. And so as the announcement went out, we had a bunch of customers who started reaching out to us saying, hey, we love that technology that you built at Balance. Would you come in-house and build that for us? And so these things kind of started to lead sort of down this road of there's somebody who will pay us to do this. We didn't really know how big that opportunity was, but we had a hunch that there was something there. And so that's really when I connected with my co-founder, Sean. And so Sean, he actually helped start one of the fastest growing groups at WorldPay, which is one of the biggest payment companies in the world. And we started to connect. And and what he shared was that the average company took two to three years before they went live when they were bringing their payments in-house. And there was just this massive technical challenge um, to actually build all this infrastructure. And we were really good at that. And so we got together and built Phoenix. And that's really how we came together and launched the company.
0: I love it. So that's 2015. Talk us a little bit about your own like personal risk that you had to take and how you actually made the decision to be like, all right, it's go time, knowing that like San Francisco is expensive and standing up a company <laughs> is hard. I just want to get a sense about like, how did you literally make that leap or were you completely comfortable being like, all right, I'm going to go do this. There's nothing else I want to do.
1: So I I knew when I moved to San Francisco that I wanted to start my own company. Um, Before that, I'd actually been interviewing at a bunch of venture capital firms, um, some that actually ended up investing in us, and I couldn't get a job. I kept getting rejections, I kept making it to the final rounds, and I said, why not just go out and start my own company then, if they won't give me an offer? So I moved across the country and, and told everybody I was gonna quit my management consulting job and learn coding. And people thought I was crazy uh, <laughs> at the age of 25, making a pretty big career pivot. And I think, you know, what gave me that sort of sense of confidence was, was really my parents. My parents are both Mexican immigrants. They came here undocumented. And, and I think when you put that in perspective, they were the ones taking the real risk. Everything that I was doing really wasn't that risky. It was exactly what I wanted to be doing. And it was something that made me happy. And so I think that's really what kind of pushed me down that direction. And a lot of sort of, uh, of my achievements, I think, and my personality come from them. And when I think about my dad, he's a workhorse, right? Um he's a bus driver, he's up before the crack of dawn, and he, he the man's a monster. Like every single morning you see him in his slacks, he's got his crisp white shirt and he's ready out there to, to hit this roads Um and we're gonna think to my mom, who's very much sort of the hustler in the family. I remember to get me into a better school, she camped outside of one of the schools in our neighborhood to make sure that I got into the lottery. When it came to time to high school, the the high schools in my neighborhood were actually some of the worst in all of California. So she went to the neighboring schools. She took my test scores to every single principal in the city to get them to try to accept me. Three schools all told her no, and the last one took me in, um, and that was really transformational for me. So I think you know when you have parents like that, you're not really discouraged by rejection or failure. If anything, you already feel like you you know you're playing with house money at this point, right? And so going out there and sort of pursuing what you want to do. That's the only thing that I could think of.
0: First of all, I'm like smiling ear to ear, Richie, because I'd heard a little bit of that story before. But I think now, again, having known you for a call it about a decade, <laughs> I think that there is something so true about what you just said, which is you are already so much more successful than your parents could have kind of ever dreamed for. And now you're literally just doing what you want to do, that house <laughs> yeah. money. And anyways, I do think that, that those are some of the best traits of entrepreneurs where you feel actually like you are super lucky to get to do what you're doing and the challenges are par for the course and this is one of the reasons why I feel like I know you can take the hill with Phoenix I want to talk a little bit about the team that you're building I know you're a hustler you work your butt off and you've gone from two people to north of a hundred can you walk everybody through just your own trajectory how big is the team today where's it going where's it gonna be by the end of the year and I know you'll break a hundred by the end of the year so it's moving fast yep. kind of where are you today and where are you headed
1: Yeah, so um, that's one of the probably the coolest parts about building a company is kind of seeing that growth and seeing the the incredible talent that you can continue to attract. Uh, When we closed our round, the Series A back in actually July, uh, we were only 18 people. As of this last month, we're now about 60 people, and the plan is to get to a little bit over 100 uh, by the end of the year. Most of that's going to be engineering. Most of it's going to be product. Obviously, when you're scaling to that size and that quickly. Um, There's a lot of sort of challenges in terms of growing the culture, and that's where we focus a lot of our time.
0: If you're a superstar engineer out there, apply to work for Richie, because there's many, many jobs that are opening up. So as you think about the sort of talent that you're bringing in, knowing that you already have such deep expertise in the payment space, just what's your philosophy as you keep building out the team and knowing that you have to do it quickly? Just how do you think about keeping your hands on those reins so that it doesn't get away from you? Yeah. I
1: think we've taken a, a unique approach. I think a lot of Silicon Valley companies have taken the approach of, we don't want anybody with payment expertise. We wanna just you know build everything new from scratch. And I think there's something that's very unique about us bringing together key payments experts and pairing it with the best Silicon Valley engineering. I think that's really given us a good insight into the industry and also helped us really mature as an organization very quickly. In terms about how we think about building a company, we always, always, always focus on quality over quantity. Right. And I think when you think about why we've been able to attract the type of talent that we have, it's because great talent attracts other great talent. The best people always want to surround themselves around people who are smart, hardworking, thoughtful. And that's something that we cherish. And so when I tell even our hiring managers about what their philosophy should be, I tell them that anybody who you hire, you should be absolutely fired up about when they give you that acceptance on that offer. Right. We just hired an incredible head of people. And one of our colleagues saw me. Doing a little dance with no music at my desk. And he's like, What are you so happy about? I was like, we hired James. I'm so fired up. And he's like, I love that. And I think, you know, whether it's closing a deal or hiring people, you want that sort of thrill and knowing that we're building the best company possible.
0: We just hired uh, somebody for our inspired team and we literally celebrated like all of us sat there. (laughs) And like when you know that you're like, we are going to win. That is exactly the way you're supposed to feel um, when you're adding people to your team. So I want you to talk a little bit. How do you think about who your competition is, knowing that you're trying to help Every company out there bring payments in-house and make it seamless, which allows them to get rid of hundreds of employees, tons of lag time, a ton of complexity, and to your point, over time, keep more of their own revenue. How do you think about who your competitor is?
1: Yeah, so I think historically, there's been two approaches to the payments ecosystem. You either outsource entirely all of your payment stack, which is very expensive and, and oftentimes not the sort of payments experience that you're trying to provide, or you go the Uber and Airbnb route and build everything in house. With Finix, we're basically saying now that there's a third way, right? Go with Finix, outsource that, don't spend all the time in terms of the technical development, but still capture the upside of monetizing your payments. I think what we're bringing to the, the market is very unique, right? And I think you're starting to see this across the entire FinTech infrastructure, where there are now infrastructure companies that are enabling better user experiences to be embedded within software, whether it's lending products, whether it's card issuing products, whether it's bank data, and Phoenix is just sort of an extension of that, but just really focusing on the payment side. And, and sort of the analogy that we always like to share is looking at AWS, right? 10, 15 years ago, you had armies of engineers who were focused entirely on managing these on-premise servers and databases. It was incredibly complex and time-consuming, and you just dedicated too many resources there. Then AWS came along and took all of that off. Um, that's what we see that's happening in the payments ecosystem, and that's how we view
0: ourselves. And with that, we'll be right back after this. Alexa here. Not only do I get the opportunity to speak with all types of founders on For Starters, but I'm a repeat founder myself. We all know how vital fundraising is to a startup. Carta knows this too. That's why they had founders in mind when they created their fundraising suite, providing tools and support to take the friction out of fundraising. They save founders time and money, allowing you to focus on your goals, not the admin work needed to close around. From simply issuing safes to quickly receiving funds, Carta Fundraising Suites helps their cap table customers raise a better fundraising round. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. So I want you to fast forward five to 10 years, being somebody who's clearly thought so much about the payment space. What are your predictions for the payment space? It's just like, what are the things that you believe is like full truths that will happen over the next decade?
1: Yeah, I think, number one, the the next billion dollar payment companies are not going to look like Stripe and they're not going to look like Square. They're going to look like our customers, Club Essential, who provide software for the country club industry. They're going to look like MindBody, who provides software for yoga studios. They're going to look like Toast, who provides software for the restaurant industry. All these vertical specific software companies that have embedded payments as a part of their core offering and now monetizing on that. In terms of you know five years down the line, I think that 50% of all revenue from payments is gonna be going to these types of software companies. And I think there's also gonna be another wave of fintech unicorns. There was just a recent acquisition of Plaid uh, last week for about $5.3 billion um, by Visa. And in the Visa report, they share that there's about 49 unicorns in the fintech space that have popped up over the last five years. I think that number is gonna double, right? I think there's just so much opportunity in the fintech space and we're just in the earliest innings. So it's an incredibly exciting time to be in the space. Something that I, I don't think many people would have said even you know, 10 years ago.
0: <laughs> Not only do I fully obviously agree with you, but I will say I think we're just in the beginning of these innings of some of the infrastructure that's being put in place so that people can go and build some really exciting companies. I want to just quickly talk a little bit about, you've had such an easy time fundraising with so much interest. If you were gonna pay it forward to everybody out there listening about building a company, what are the things that you feel like you've learned were just vital to you being super successful at your fundraise?
1: Uh, I'm definitely happy to share some specifics that have really worked for me. But I think you know, in terms of investors, they're really excited about the quality of the team and really sort of our our huge ambitions and and really the size of the the market opportunity. Those are sort of the key three things that you really have to have um, if you're looking to go out and fundraise. In terms of, of running a successful process, for me, it comes down to two things. It's process and it's practice right? A lot of people just go out there and they think that they can just pitch anybody randomly and they're going to be able to close around. And yeah, there's a ton of capital out there, but that's not the most efficient way to run this sort of process. It is in many ways and can be more of a, of a science than, than really an art. And so when I tell any of my friends who are going out and fundraising, I always tell them, number one, figure out who your relevant investors are, right? Who are the ones who know your space? Who are the ones that you want on your board? Who are the ones that can add value, right? And then it's about tapping into your network. For me, what I was able to do was I actually did an entire LinkedIn dump, i found the export feature, extracted the you know, 1,000, 2,000 LinkedIn connection that I had, and I found every single person who was in fintech, who was in VC, who was at a tech company, and reached out to them to ask for help. And you'd be shocked by the types of leads that you end up getting that way. And then I think the last part of that is just do your homework, right? Read every blog post before you go out and pitch a VC. Um, listen to their podcasts, because they'll tell you how they view the world. And so when you can relate to people, and you can relate to investors Uh, It has a much bigger impact. And to the second part, it's about practice, right? No one's good at pitching. No one just was born with sort of a great storytelling sort of capabilities. I actually, when I was doing my pitches, would sit in lifts, put on my AirPods and pretend like I was on a phone call with somebody and just (laughs) pitch to myself over and over. When I walked into work, I would do the pitches. When I was out with friends, I would try to explain it to them because a lot of it is just storytelling.
0: I always tell people, um, go to your five smartest friends and walk them through your pitch and like listen to them, tread it, give them the space yeah. to tell you what they don't totally get or the questions that they have. And when you have your five smartest friends all have the same questions in common, make a slide because it's clear that it's something <laughs> yeah. that's missing from your deck. Or if they ask super specific questions, make a slide, put it in the appendix. It's mm-hmm. really simple and there's so much street smarts that go into it, but it is practice makes perfect, which actually brings me to a 10 second story. So you guys have to know, Richie came to me to Series A and I was nine months pregnant and our firm, Inspired Capital, was like a minute old and he basically chatted with me. And I said to myself, I need to do this deal right now. But I knew I was having a baby in like the next 24 (laughs) hours. And I there was just no chance that I could actually do both. So I'm really excited that I finally got to invest uh, at the Series B, but I kick myself deeply. I have a beautiful baby girl, but I miss being able to invest in Richie, given my timing. Anyway, so uh, we'll keep paying it forward, Richie.
1: The addition to that story was, I think the week after you had your baby, you were in our office, already back in action, <laughs> running. I mean, no one no one hustles harder than you. So oh. total respect.
0: <laughs> I love Richie. So let's quickly switch gears. I want to just talk a little bit about, um, you know, I, I think we have a good sense of your mindset, but you've taken some major risks in your career personally, having gone from, you know, working in these really formalized structured management consulting to you then being like, screw this, I'm going to go learn to code. Help people understand just like where did that come from what was that what what was behind that decision
1: I feel like for me if anybody ever tells me that I can't do something that inspires me even more just to prove them wrong Uh, and so I had a few ideas um, when I was starting off thinking about doing my own company and I, I pitched a few of my buddies and they're like well you can't code you've never worked at a rocket ship startup and your parents aren't rich so who's gonna give you money and so I knew I couldn't change necessarily you know coming from a wealthy family or having worked at a rocket ship startup but I could learn how to code So I moved across the country. And I actually lived in a hacker house in Soma. So it was me and like 50 other engineering nerds, just learning (laughs) software engineering, sort of immersing ourselves in that. And I think the other part of that is just, you know, the great thing about San Francisco, and it's the reason why you have this sort of concept of like open source technology, is that people want to help each other, right? It's not the same sort of a culture that you kind of sometimes see in finance, where everyone wants to hoard their intellectual property. Here, people want to see everybody rise. And I think that was one of the things that made it easier to jump into that world. My first nine months at Balance, the previous payment company where I started my engineering career, I got paid $3,000 a month, like a massive pay cut from my consulting days, and loved every single minute of it. Uh, the person who I reported to was a 20-year-old from Berkeley uh, who was a comp sci major who was just working for us, and it was awesome. Just the amount of learning that you can pick up, and so... Uh, I, I, you know, cherish the fact that they gave me that opportunity and they gave they took a risk on me.
0: I just love you have no ego. And it's so amazing. And it's one of the reasons why you're going to be so successful. I want to talk a little bit about your style as a leader. So, you know, you're young. This is the first time you've done it. I myself have been gone through all of the battles and bruises of, you know, figuring out how to be a better leader and grow and scale. And some of it, you know, you just have to, like, make the mistakes and get better. And some of it you can pre-learn. How do you think about your own leadership style, knowing that you're in the middle of going from, call it, 60 employees now to 100 by the end of the year, probably 150 shortly after? How are you thinking about leadership and getting better at it?
1: Yeah, I would say that my leadership style has definitely evolved over the years, right? And, And it kind of transitions as you go to different stages of the company. Uh, when we first got started off, we didn't have any resources and so I did everything it took to succeed. Um, and it really wasn't sustainable, right? You kind of, you start to see burnout from yourself and the rest of the team. Um, and so we knew there had to be sort of a, a better way. And so my leadership style sort of transition kind of using a, a metaphor was more of a quarterback style of, at the second stage, right? Where you're kind of yelling out plays and formations and telling people what to do, but then that really didn't allow people to learn and to grow. And so from then, And I think now where I'm really focusing on is sort of a coaching style leadership, right? Where it's identifying talent and providing, um, you know, enough sort of feedback and sort of tough love that gets people to perform at their peak, right? And really trying to think about how when you have those high standards, really making sure that it comes from a place of love, right? Really trying to think about how you can nurture people and see the potential in them and really get the best out of everybody. Uh, And it kind of comes in many ways from a book that I read um, by Bill Walsh. He was one of the 49ers coaches called The Score Takes Care of Itself. And I think you know one of the things that he really sort of focuses on is that you have to practice in the way that is as perfect as possible, right? And so he taught the cleaning staff that he worked for to prepare the facilities in the exact same way. The receptionist to always respond to phone calls in the same way. He taught his wide receivers to always run in very precise routes. And when you put that kind of work ethic and that kind of discipline, then you really don't have to worry about the score. Winning kind of starts to take care of itself. And I think when you kind of combine... That level of discipline with luck and talent, that's where, you know, really special things start to come about. And you can never forget about that luck element either.
0: I want to talk a little bit about something that's really clear to me. I mean, we are what we see, right? And I think you grew up in a house of exceptional hard work. And mm-hmm. it's clear to me that you bring that discipline to Phoenix and it's clear to me that like you're going to die trying <laughs> like <laughs> yeah. Phoenix isn't going to break you. Um, and yeah. it's like you are going to be the guy who will do whatever it takes to win and to be successful. What are the things that you're super disciplined about? What routines or what habits or what is it that is kind of that magic playbook for you personally?
1: I am very much a creature of habit. I do have a lot of very consistent routines. I usually eat the same breakfast, same lunch. Um, I'm usually optimizing for efficiencies. I think some of the things that really drove my sort of productivity though, over the last few years has been cutting out things like social media, to be honest. Removing and deleting my Instagram, my Facebook, uh, my Snapchat had a a profound impact on me. Not only in terms of just like removing the noise and the clutter and these notifications and allowing me to get into flow, um, But just your mental health, right? And I think when you end up, I've done this with a few friends, is kind of doing an exercise of open up your iPhone and, and look at how much time you spend on average per week on these types of tools and solutions, you start to see how much it really starts to eat into your life. So that's been something that's been very, very big for me is how do I cut out different types of distractions just like that?
0: I love that. I used to say, and this is obviously before having uh, children, but I used to say that when I was at work, I was 100 million percent at work. And, you know, for me, work was always the hours of call at 830 to 730. But during that time, I never left to eat. I like never like I just same breakfast, same lunch. (laughs) And it was like there were no text messages happening. There were no personal phone calls. And it was just and that way when I could go home, I could go home. And I could actually put my, I could be like, all right, I can take a break because it was so on. What else do you do in terms of just handling your own stress? You're a young entrepreneur. You're literally on the field <laughs> and stress exists. What are your other rules that you kind of follow for yourself?
1: For me, there's, there's a few things that i done and it ties into some of the stuff that you just mentioned. I view myself, and it took me a while to get here, very much as a sprinter, right? Where it's Monday through Friday all I focus on really is work. And that allows me to kind of get in that flow. And, you know, Friday at eight or 9pm, whenever I decide to leave the office, I just kind of unwind and disconnect. And I think you do need to allow yourself that sort of downtime, right? It's it just makes you much more productive and efficient, and just a happier person, right? Yeah.
0: By the way, I'm laughing a little bit, Richie, and I, I'm laughing because Richie and I were in the middle of um, helping yeah. close this last round, and there was like a good 24 hour window where he went completely quiet. And I remembered to myself, I was like, "Oh yeah, he told me." I was like, "He goes dark on like Saturdays," and in my head, I was like, "I was like, well, then I'm gonna leave him alone." I was like, "Let's let him get his." It was also your anniversary, but um, I was very much like. Oh, okay. I and And I think it's so healthy, and I used to take Saturdays to just be totally quiet and actually like be with my family, now my husband, et cetera.
1: You're it's spot on. That's exactly what happened that weekend. That said, in the world of payments, it's twenty four seven. so you know if there's any a crisis or anything like that, you just have to always be on call. So I do take those moments when you can disconnect and cherish them. In terms of sort of resetting myself, I think, you know, what are the hobbies that you really care about for me? Uh, it's going with my girlfriend to you know music festivals like we're huge concert junkies um we love to go and see shows we go as much as we can on on the weekends to go and see that we prefer that to bars the other thing is just working out right i think that's something that just kind of allows me to to clear my mind Uh, this is probably uh sharing a little bit too much but i'm a huge soul cycle aficionado (laughs) my girlfriend got me into that and it's so fun and then the other part is just being with my friends right um even though you might be tired and exhausted, I am very much an extrovert. You are so, such an
0: extrovert. You are, yeah. are such an extrovert.
1: <laughs> so when the weekend rolls around, that's that's what I want to do is spend my time with my friends and my family and the, the loved ones.
0: You are such a recharger by being with other people. Even if you're tired, that is totally how you mentally recharge. <laughs> so I want to quickly just – when you think about Sunday night and you're looking at the week ahead of you and something is making you so excited, you feel energized, what's happening in the week that is just getting you amped up?
1: When you – introduced me, you mentioned my, my old consulting days. And it's funny to kind of think back on that because back when I was in consulting, I had the worst case of Sunday scaries where it was like 11 or noon and I would just look at the <laughs> clock like, oh my God. And now I have another five days until the next weekend kicks off. I don't have that anymore. If anything, I, you know, every single day you wake up just revved up and fired up. There's so many things to be excited about. It, it feels like you're asking me to pick you know, my favorite child. <laughs> so that's a little bit hard to think about, but honestly it's the people it is the people hundred percent. Like just seeing the team, they give me so much energy being around them. It's hard not to get emotional when you start to think about, you know, the team that we have built, seeing their progress, seeing their professional and personal growth. Um, and that's what, you know, also just continues to give me energy.
0: I love it. Um, okay. So just quick fire round here. Um, I want to hear what was the coolest pinch me moment that you've had so far at Phoenix?
1: Ooh, that's a great question. Uh, for me, I mean, Obviously, there's a lot of sort of roller coaster ride moments in the startup world and a lot of awesome things that get to happen. But there is a JP Morgan industry research report that gets published every single year, and we've been reading it for years. Everybody who's in the payments industry reads it. If you haven't, check it out. It's incredible. And last year, they made a mention about us and they included us in their report. And so, for anybody who's a, a payment geek and treats that as their payment bi- bible, That was a big moment of validation for us to know that, you know, we are making some noise and people are seeing the stuff that we're building and it's really starting to resonate with the market. So that was a really special moment for me.
0: Um, That is uh, very, very cool. And I can only imagine when you are interviewing somebody. Right. And you're like really trying to get to them. Do you have a favorite interview question that you feel like helps just you really see somebody?
1: Yeah, Every single interview that I have, I always start off by asking people to share their life story with me. Uh, I think it's one of the the ways to really get past the sort of you know basic you know interview responses and and get deep into what makes a person tick. When you hear and understand what their life decisions were, you understand them better as a person, and and you really start to understand whether or not they would fit within the organization. Uh, and so that's a great question that always helps me, um, and it just kind of sets the tone for the conversation. The other one that I always ask is what motivates you. Um, You'd be surprised a lot of people don't necessarily have a great answer to that. But the ones who do, it's really can be a very touching moment, right? And people do share a lot of personal stuff with you. And it really just helps you understand the person at their core. And so when I think about myself, those are questions that I ask myself all the time.
0: I love it. Fast forward. So there's a Richie listening to this, right? Somebody thinking about going and starting something. What piece of advice would you give an entrepreneur just getting started out that you wish somebody had said to you?
1: The best piece of feedback that that I wish someone would have given me: only do business with people you trust. <laughs> we very much as, as we kicked off our, our Series A round, and people asked us what we wanted in investors. Number one thing that I would say was we have a no assholes rule, and I think you know it comes down to the people that you you know surround yourself with. And there's a lot of money that's out there, and and not all money ends up being equal, and it's the reason why you know we were so excited to to work together in this next round. And I think if you look at the investors that we brought to the table that's something that's core to everyone, right? You can be an incredibly smart person and be a good person too.
0: Well, I'm super excited because not only are Richie's investors awesome, but some of the other firms was one of my old board members. So it's like, we're getting (laughs) the gang back together. This is awesome. Um, So last kind of um, big question here, which is, Outside of payments, outside of fintech, if there is one company or concept that you're excited about, like so this can be a company you want to pay it forward to, another startup that you've heard about that you like, or a space that you're just interested in, what would it be?
1: So one, one product that I use uh, uh, basically on a daily basis now is a company and a product called Four Degrees. Basically, you can kind of think of it as being sort of superhuman for your relationship management, right? It plugs in your email, your calendar. Helps search through your entire network and give you recommendations based on wherever you're traveling to next, who you should meet. And so, for example, fly out to LA, it'll tell me, you know, who in my network is based in that area. Obviously, LinkedIn is an incredibly powerful tool, um, but it only goes so far. And I think as a founder, your network 100% is your most powerful asset, right? It's a competitive advantage. Uh, and I think back to one of the classes I took in college by Robert Putnam, and he took this, and um, he wrote this book called Bowling Alone, where he talks about the value of social capital. And one thing I'll never forget was that he shared that one of the biggest indicators of success for people is their Rolodex. And obviously we don't have Rolodexes anymore, but how can you optimize and get that value out of your network and Four Degrees helps me with that.
0: First of all, um, everybody check out Four Degrees. One thing I wanna say, somebody said this to me in the last year, so I'm now 36, so I feel like it. I wish somebody would have said this to me earlier. They said, <laughs> it actually doesn't matter where you went to school or what you're good at. Um, What matters for success is who you know and how much they trust you. And that is actually going to be the biggest indicator of what you can accomplish. And I was like, wow, that is such a powerful statement, which is, who do you know? How much do they like you and how much do they trust you? And I, I mean, it really just echoes to uh, what you just said, and, and I love it. First of all, Richie, what an honor. I'm so excited. Congratulations on your really big news. I cannot wait to just watch what you accomplish over at Phoenix. For everybody listening, they're hiring, so go check them out. If you can be a customer of Phoenix, check that out. But, Richie, thank you so much for being here today and sharing your story. We wish you the absolute best of luck and go get them.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you for having me.
0: Guys, if you want to learn more about Phoenix, check out PhoenixPayments.com and join us next week for Inc., the Founders with Alexa Von Tobel. Thank you all for listening. You can subscribe to Inks the Founders Project with Alexa Tobal wherever your podcasts are offered.